0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I thought maybe we'd never get to that, but Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're going to take a look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. We probably pick up pace here a little bit, but Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 for today. I think there's something really important for us to kind of talk through in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. All right, let's jump right into this. Verse 1 He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, Stop right there and let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look at these words, that Father, we would be able to recall as best as possible, Father, the, the words that you have spoken thus far in this book. There's three chapters, Father, that are very important. For which Paul says, I therefore. And so, Father, I pray as we study scriptures today, this passage today, and these very important words. That Father, um, that you'd help some of these truths to sink in. And that, Father, ultimately we would see your glory behind these texts and so be captivated. Well, Father, we give you praise. And in your Son's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Most of us tend to be self oriented. Matter of fact, I would say all of us even have the tendency to be self oriented. We see many things, first of all, and sometimes only in relation to ourselves. We think, how does my kid's behavior reflect on me? That's our first thought. That's our primary thought even often. How is this job change going to impact me? We might branch out to my family. Or this person made me feel bad when they didn't say hi to me. Thinking in relation to just me. Or what is best for my day? What do I need, in order, need to do in order to accomplish my agenda for today? And there's many examples here. Just trying to give you kind of a, a broad sweeping ex, uh, set of examples that would maybe hit at least most of us in this room. We tend to think in relation to only ourselves. And it is easy to go day by day or even week by week only thinking about living in relation to ourselves. Now, I know that most of us, that gets interrupted at least once a week on Sunday mornings, and then maybe twice a week for house gatherings. But we can go Monday and Tuesday or whenever your house gathering is, and then the rest of the week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, just living and thinking in relation to ourselves. It's very easy for us to do. It's our natural tendency. What we don't think oftentimes about is how do my... Kids' heart dishonor God or dishonor Christ, thinking about our kids in relation to Christ instead of in relation to us. How does my kids' actions impact other people? So not even just thinking about it in relation to Christ, but in thinking about it in relation to other people, other image bearers of God. <clears throat> Or how do my actions, my job choices, my whatever it is that I'm doing, how does my actions impact the body of Christ? Or how does it reflect on my Father in heaven? Or how does my job impact God's kingdom plan to unite all things in Christ? So again, trying to draw a distinction between thinking in relation only to ourselves and thinking in relation primarily to Christ. How do these things fit and interact and work in relation to Christ and His kingdom. You see, you see, the person who has the Word of Christ abiding in Him richly, the one who saturates his mind with divine wisdom and truth will ask this question, how does this, whatever it is, affect God? How does this, whatever it is, I'm doing, thinking, feeling, and acting upon how will it reflect on Him? You see, someone filled with the Word of Christ, dwelling in Him richly. As we've talked about here, Paul's talking about and just in these passages, just prior to this, at the end of chapter 3, talking about uh, this inner spiritual power and, and such. He is talking about how does, he gets to now, how does we walk in a way in a manner worthy of our calling? This kind of person who's filled with the word richly in him, he tries to see everything through God's divine grid. tries to look at everything through how does God think about this. You all remember the bracelets? Uh, I mean, some of you might be a little young for this, but uh, WWJD, you remember those bracelets? Does everyone remember those? Anyone too young to remember those? I just Okay, all right. Just a couple. WWJD, what would Jesus do? All right? what would Jesus do? You know, I, I some of you have heard me tell this story, but I was in elementary school when those kind of were popular, and, and I chose not to wear one. I chose not to wear one because I felt like I couldn't live like Jesus did, and so if I was wearing that bracelet and people didn't see me live as Jesus would do, then there would be a, a difference between the two of us, and and so I thought, for for good or bad, that I shouldn't do it. But this person tries to think through God's divine grid. This attitude, I would argue, is the basis and the mark of spiritual maturity. Seeing everything in relationship to God. But I think if you look back, you should look back, spend some time this week. If you did Renovate Us, if you don't know what Renovate Us is, it's, it's a thing that I put out on Thursdays, uh, usually Thursdays, sometimes Fridays, that has a list of questions. And literally what I do is I, after I get done writing the sermon, I literally put my notes on the left side of my screen, pull up another blank document, and I work through my sermon and I ask questions that go right in line with my sermon. And so what you're able to do is you're able to do a lot of thinking ahead of time So that you can think upon more things right here in the middle of the sermon. And I know I've heard from many people testimonies that when they do that, they are able to uh, get more out of Sunday morning when they come prepared for that. But what I wanted to say is that I asked you in Renovate Us, if you did that, to reflect on this past week or past days, past months, of, of how much you think in relation to yourself versus in relation to God. So you see, this attitude, though, is the basis in Mark, one of the Marks, really, of spiritual maturity. Think about Psalm 16.8. It says this, I've set the Lord always before me. I've set the Lord always before me. He says, because He is my right hand, I shall not be shaken. (coughs) You see, we're not meant to build a kingdom that revolves around us. And if you, look at your past, if you look at your life the past few months or whatever, you're trying to build a kingdom that revolves around you, hopefully, I pray, that you have found it failing. And if you haven't found it failing, I hope it fails soon by God's grace. Because you're not meant to build a kingdom that revolves around you Not meant to build a kingdom that revolves around your kids. Or not meant to build a kingdom that revolves around any other idolatry that you might have. But we're called to something much greater. We're called to build a kingdom. Be a part of building a kingdom that revolves around one person and one person only. And that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're called to build His kingdom. And be a part of building everything in being united underneath Christ. We talked about this a little bit last week. I want to draw your attention, first and foremost, to one word in this passage. The very beginning there, he says, therefore. Paul says, therefore. Now this therefore, as Rusty would say, what's the therefore, therefore? Right? What's the therefore? Therefore. The therefore, the therefore, marks a transition in this letter. I told you last week that we're getting ready to transition, well, he is making that transition right here. The therefore is kind of like the whoop. Now we're on the the, the, the other side of this transition. And we're getting ready to, in the next word, when he, when he says urge, we're now in the new transition. We're now in the new part of the letter. We are moving away. Here's If you want to think about uh, Ephesians in two different parts, here's, here's kind of the dividing thing or the, the categories for you. We're now moving away from... Positional truth to practical truth. Okay? Positional truth, meaning who we are in Christ, what God has done alone. His act in salvation to now practical truth. We're moving from doctrine to duty. We're moving from principle to practice. So we're moving from doctrine to duty, and yes, I did say duty. We will address this in just a bit, but we have very anti-law driven hearts, and we have so robbed duty of its pleasure. When we think about obeying the commands of God, our hearts just kind of (gasps) go, right? (gasps) You're telling me I have to do something. Yeah, See, God expects Right. Let's just say this from the very beginning God expects conformity Within the body of Christ He expects obedience He expects conformity He expects us to follow His ways Now hear me on this I'm going to read this a couple different times God does not expect forced legalistic conformity to external rules and regulations, but instead He expects a willing inner conformity to the holiness, love, and will of our Heavenly Father who wants His children to honor Him as their Father. Let me say that again. God does not expect forced legalistic conformity to external rules and regulations, but instead a willing inner conformity to the holiness, love, and will of our Heavenly Father, who wants His children to honor Him as their Father. Now listen, if we don't understand that God expects conformity, and that He expects it a certain way, we will miss out on one of the greatest gifts God has ever given to his children and that is the revelation of himself namely through his law and more broadly through the commands of scripture particularly the commands of his son Jesus Christ We'll miss it. We'll miss it. We can't miss this. Here's my kind of my thesis if you will for this morning. Beloved children of God, delight in God's commands. Beloved children of God, delight in God's commands. You know, Paul's language here is kind of interesting. This language of the calling to which you have been called, the calling to which you've been called, is... I believe language pointing us to live a certain way in response to something specific. We don't live a way in a certain way just because that's what we're supposed to do, but we live in such a way in response to something. And I think that something that he's talking about is the work of the gospel and the loving God behind it. So we live and walk in a certain way in response to what God has done in calling us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of what we're going to flesh out today. So here we go. First point is this. We are prisoners of the Lord because of His great gospel. We are prisoners of the Lord because of His great gospel. So Paul, again, he says this, therefore, what's Paul doing? Paul is saying that everything I've said, chapters 1, 2, and 3, because he's just painted this picture of God's plan that he has enacted through the gospel. We'll recount that here in just a few seconds. Because of that, therefore, he's going to go on to say, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But for just a second, Paul says here, he says that I, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. on your translation, a prisoner of the Lord. You see, we are prisoners. Paul's a prisoner. This is certainly a principle that is that is applicable to us as well. We are, we should see ourselves as prisoners. Prisoners for the Lord. Prisoners of the Lord. Let's talk about this for a second. What is a prisoner not concerned with? A prisoner, particularly one that sees it as a non-ending imprisonment, is not concerned with orienting all his plans around his own selfish desires he's not concerned with promoting his own ideals and preferences for how life should go he's not concerned with ultimately with what other people think of him or having influence and power over other people a prisoner is ultimately only concerned with the desires of his master What he means by prisoner is that he would see everything oriented toward the Master. To see everything in relation to the Master. You see, Paul had the ability to see most things. I mean, he certainly was a sinner still. But he had this unique ability to see things in light of how it affected Christ. His motives were most often Christ. His standards were Christ. His objectives were Christ's obje- objectives. His vision was Christ's vision. His entire orientation was Christ. I mean, Paul, clearly from his writings we can see, I don't, I don't mean to lead us to worship Paul. I hope that doesn't happen in your heart. But only to see Paul as a gracious example from God. But we see he's, he's a captive of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a prisoner of Christ if you want something that's tweetable, sees everything vertically before he sees it horizontally. A prisoner of Christ sees everything vertically before he sees it horizontally. See, we have to get our focus. Paul Paul saw things vertically before he saw them horizontally. We have to get our focus off the horizontal plane and move it to the vertical plane. When we think about how often, in whatever life situation it is, that you're always looking this way. Wow, life looks so flat and so discouraging and so tough and so hard and so impossible. I can't overcome the situation. I can't, it's just it's just I can't do it. I can't overcome the sin. I, everything seems to be falling apart. Stop looking so horizontal. Begin vertically and then move horizontally. See, we are prisoners because of the Lord's work in the gospel, right? So I just want to flesh this out for the next few moments. We're going to kind of linger here for a good bit. We are prisoners because of the Lord's work in the gospel. Now, here's what I want you to see. (coughs) This imprisonment is meant to be understood as a glorious thing, okay? We think of imprisonment as a bad thing. This is meant to be understood as a glorious thing. Let me tell you what Paul's saying. To be chosen by God, I'm just going to think back over Ephesians thus far. To be chosen by God is to become Christ's prisoner. So God chose you unto salvation, it means to become Christ's prisoner. To be adopted as sons of God is to be Christ's prisoner. To be sealed in the Spirit is to be Christ's prisoner. To be dead but now alive in Christ, chapter 2, is to be Christ's prisoner. And what, what has Paul been doing? Paul's in chapters 1, 2, and 3 has been recounting the gospel for us. Let's do that in, to refresh our memories. Just very quickly, he talks about the beginning of chapter 1 making known to us his plan to unite all things in Christ. This is what Paul has been doing in chapters 1, 2, and 3. God's plan through the gospel to unite all things in Jesus. Now don't think that Paul is just trying to enlighten their mind to know that God's trying to make this plan. And I think that's where even we can get in in danger because Just think, okay, okay, cool. Well, God's going to unite all things in Jesus. That's awesome, and I can go about my life now. I think only truly the redeemed could see. I think that's the point of the mystery. Like God has revealed this mystery to you to see. It's been a mystery, but only you guys get this. The redeemed people of God see the glorious mystery. He talks about beginning with predestinating or predestining those whom he would save. Those who were dead without hope—I mean, think about what Paul's recounting for us over there. I don't want to rehash all this, but it's about sealing us in the Spirit. That's about those who once walked in darkness have now been brought to light. Those who were dead are now alive. But God, being rich in mercy, right, because of the love with which He loves us, made us alive together with Christ. And then at the end of chapter two, He says, "We are His workmanship." created in Christ for good works that God prepared before him that we should walk in them through the gospel God's work through Jesus on the cross we are created in Christ for good works that's what Paul's getting ready to transition us to right from principle to practice from doctrine to duty these works that we are prepared for, that were prepared by God before us that we should walk in them. So here's what's happening. Paul's in prison, right? We know this. Paul's in prison. He's a prisoner of the government. But Paul is saying, I'm so convinced of these truths. Chapters 1, 2, 3. I'm sure beyond, but at the very least, of these truths. I'm so convinced of these truths. I'm so captivated by the God revealed in these truths that I'm compelled to imprisonment for my Savior. I believe these so strongly. I'm so convinced of these things. I, therefore, urge you to do these things. And in the midst of that, he says, I am a prisoner for God, for Christ. You see, in Paul's mind... I think his physical imprisonment is only the result of his imprisonment to Christ. It's because of his imprisonment to Christ that he is a, a, a prisoner on this earth. I mean, sure, these chains bind my hands, I'm sure Paul is thinking. But the greater reality is that my inner man is enslaved to the only true king, and his name is Jesus. Because Paul Paul's doing the same thing at the end of Colossians. He talks about how does a slave interact with his master. He points them to the, the, he doesn't say, leave your master. He tells them, he points them to the greater reality of their enslavement to God, to Christ. That that's the greater reality here. And Paul's doing the same thing here. I'm a prisoner for Christ. Now listen, you understand this idea of enslavement more than you realize Being enslaved to Christ. I want to help you think about this. I want you to pick something other than Jesus that you most greatly desire. Think about it right now. The thing that tends to captivate your heart, captivate your mind, the thing that tends to control you and drive you, you tend to think about when there's nothing else to think about. Where does your mind go? I'll pick one. How about other people's approval? You're so convinced that you need their approval. You're willingly and gladly pursue their approval. You go after it. You think about it. You think about ways to get it. You even are willing to maybe stretch a little bit of the truth so so that they think the way about you that you think they should think about you. What are you doing? You are willingly and gladly becoming a prisoner to that approval. So you know a little bit better what this looks like than you realize. What it means to be an enslaved person to someone else. And we all struggle with fear of man. Whether or not that's, as we talk about around here, our root idol or our source idol. We all struggle with fear of man. That's a common thing for all of us. And we can willingly enslave ourselves to that. So you see and understand what's happening here. So Paul is so convinced of the God revealed through the gospel that he can't help but delight in being a prisoner for the Lord. So if you're kind of writing down some subpoints, I'm going to give you this next subpoint here. It says the gospel convinces us that obedience is a delight. I want to kind of do a little bit of a footnote here for a few seconds. Because I think this is really important. This is something that we've not talked about a ton as a church. And I think it's really important for us to understand. You know, we tend to preach this way, but this is kind of a, a belief behind a lot of our preaching. You see, we so delight in the God represented by the truth, that we are willing to go even to the point of imprisonment. This is what's happening with Paul. I am so captured by what is going on in the gospel and the God behind it that I am willing to be imprisoned. I mean, all of us would say this, right? We would say, Oh, if the law ever put me in jail because of my faith, you know, I would stand strong and I would go to jail. Maybe, maybe not. But how about today? How about, how about yesterday? Were you a prisoner of your own sinful delights or a prisoner who delights in the Lord? Let's think about that for a second. Because we can all think about how we would, we would stand up for our faith and, and Jesus and we'd go to jail. But, but who did you subject to your imprisonment to yesterday or this morning on your way to church? Was it to your own delights, your own sinful delights, or was it to your delight in Christ? For a second here, what I I want to do, I I want to just walk, again, this is kind of like a side note here, but I think it's important for us to understand as we walk into this very dutiful passages to follow. I want us to think about two terms. I want to be a little... Uh, Theological, like nerdy, here on you for just a few moments, okay? So, so bear with me. Take good notes. If you don't understand some words, that's fine. You just ask me. I'll define them for you later. Talk about the idea. Of we we talk about the church a lot about the idea of legalism, being legalistic. Kind of the opposite side of that is a fancy word that I like saying, but it's called antinomianism, all right. It's just think of it this way. It's kind of like anti-law. Like, and, like there's no use for the law, no law. There's no value in the law. Let's talk about these two for just a few seconds. See, legalism, most of us with church backgrounds came from a good bit of legalism. I'm speaking of just my observation for us as a church. Keeping the law was your go-to. It's kind of how you maintain your righteousness or your self-righteousness. This makes everything you do for the Lord, duty, done ultimately for selfish reasons, right? So I can maintain my self-righteousness. You do what you are supposed to do because God said so, and you do it in a manner detached from the heart. Okay? So it would be legalism. And a lot of us have that kind of past. God said, do it, so I should do it. Detached from anything of the heart. On the flip side, this kind of anti-law or anti nominism is some of us come from a background where obeying the law, obeying God's commands, kind of serves no purpose, right? Because we're we're all covered by grace, we're all saved by grace, by grace through faith. Doesn't matter what we do. I'm gonna secure, my salvation secured, and and grace covers all my sins, and it's all grace. All it's all I need, and kind of this, the law. We're just gonna kind of stay away from that anything that feels like that we're just going to kind of run away from and the issue here is why why do i obey christ's commands what purpose does it serve i mean paul so paul's he's saying i'm a prisoner for the lord i'm a prisoner to doing these things for god and living in this manner for god I'm a prisoner to these things. What how does how do we think about that in terms of grace and law and You see if I'm saved because Jesus kept the law, then what does the law have to do with me? Or maybe more broadly, how do I think about obedience in relation to my salvation? How do those two kind of work together? Or are they really kind of, cuz I think in many of our minds the idea of obedience and salvation are kind of like you know, kind of like we got to keep them apart, right? This salvation, Jesus, you know, it's all there. And, and over here is, all, and I can't forget about being obedient, right? That's kind of how we think of the two. So here's what happens. I was so helped this week. I've started reading this book called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. He's thinking through this. Um, and so I'm going to use a little bit of his language, I think he's just really helpful. You see, we tend to fix antinomianism. This is how we tend to fix it, like anti-law. So to those people who think, to those people who think, oh, it's just grace, it's just grace, and, and the law, you know, that's evil, and it's just grace and Jesus, and here's how we tend to try to fix them. We tend to point them towards the rules. Say, be scared, do the law, obey, you should think that way. And we push them towards legalism. And then the way we tend to fix legalism is to say, you just need to avoid anything that feels like law. Just stay away from it. Avoid it. I've seen people even in this church go this route. Because of your legalistic past, now you stay away from anything that feels like law. Anything that feels like duty. And I want to stay away from that. Now, here's the reality, though. Both of these things come from the same lie. Both being legalistic and being anti-law, both come from the same lie. That lie is this, that the law of God is separate, is completely apart or divorced from the gracious hands of the Heavenly Father. It comes from that lie. We'd see the law as, this is the law over here, and then God's like, God and Jesus are way over here away from that law. And so both of them see that as, uh, come from that lie, and try to fix it their own ways. I want to point you to a story we all are familiar with. This is what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. This is what happened to Adam. let seek through the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. What happens? You have Adam and Eve. God creates them, gives them everything they need. He is pouring out His grace. He walks with them. They're given in that. They're given law. So law is given prior to the fall. Right? Now law comes later, but they're given at least a very minimalistic piece of the law. Fruitful Multiply. Spread my image. Don't eat from this tree. Don't eat from this tree. Then what happens? Satan comes along and says what? He says, God didn't really mean what he said. And then he he says, God's actually withholding something from you. That God's actually keeping something from you by commanding you not to eat from this tree. Now before Adam and Eve are going, oh, yeah, we trust God. This is good and we love Him and, and His rules are good and they're for our good and, and He's protecting us and caring for us and, 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 and all these things. And, and they're viewing, even the, no, I don't want the tree. That's, that's their view. And then Satan comes and says, oh, no, 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 no. His law to not eat from the tree is different. It sits over here. He's over here and he's trying to keep something from you by not eating of this tree. His law is not good for you. Adam and Eve do what? They believe him. And now what happens is the law is separated from the gracious hand of God. This was Satan's lie. God is not good, he is withholding something from you via his law. Now Adam and Eve begin to see the law as oppression. you ever thought about this? Particularly if you have children. You give your child everything. Like, like you just, you've, just, you know, you've just given them the greatest day of their life, right? You've given them the greatest day of their life and then you bring them home and they see that piece of candy sitting up on top of the countertop, right? And they say, can I have that candy? And you're like, what do you say? If, if you're a, a good parent, you say, no, that's mine. I'm saving you, my child, from sugar. No, no, you, you, yes, you say no, I, I think. You say no, and then what does that child do? Right? You just gave them the greatest day of their life. And they're like, I want the candy, right? You never give me candy, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have everything. And they become convinced that God is withholding good from them because of his law. When in reality, it's the other way around. God intends good for them by his law. The law is a gracious thing to Adam and Eve. We wouldn't be here, at least in this mindset, and struggling with this flesh and these hearts, if we still believed wholeheartedly that God's law was for our good if that never would have happened in the garden. So this is what we do. We don't want to obey God. Most often, I think, every time. Because we see His law as what Sinclair Ferguson calls naked law. It's naked law. It's law that has been divorced from the gracious hand of God. So we see law over here is just this kind of set-apart thing that we're not supposed to do or we're supposed to act in a certain way as Paul's going to say, live in a manner worthy. He's going to give us duty, a way to live. And we can see that sitting over here and, and God sitting over here and, and just something to ignore, be apart from. And maybe do if we get around to it and be very careful when we do it. Instead of seeing it as coming from the very hand of God. But I want to point you to what does the gospel do? What does the gospel do? What happens in the gospel? What happens with Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection? What happens? So in the gospel, you see the law. What is the law? God's revealed standard that comes forth from his very character, right? So That's what I'm thinking when I'm thinking law. God's revealed standard, God that comes from his character, reveals who he is. What do we see? We see the law, and we see Jesus who loves the Father, And knows that the law and God's commands are from God's gracious hand. And so what does Jesus do? He obeys perfectly. He obeys the Father perfectly. He fulfills the law. He keeps the law. And then what do we see? We see that we could not keep the law. We know that. We cannot keep the law. But Jesus did. So we see Jesus loving the Father, joy in the Father, experiencing love from the Father, keeping the law, and then dying on our behalf. And then as he goes to the grave, he's resurrected, and then ascends to the Father's right hand. And we see the result of living under the Father's rule. Namely, joy that overcomes even the greatest of fears, like the fear of bearing the wrath of God. And we see eternal, unhindered communion with the Father. We see Jesus exalted to the right hand of God. So when you see the gospel, you see the law and the gracious hand of God united once again. You see, Jesus, because Jesus knows the law comes from his Father's gracious hand. He doesn't just come, guys, he doesn't just come to the earth and go, all right, well, I gotta keep these set of rules so I can keep my father happy. That's not Jesus' motivation. It can't be. I want to give you a passage at the end today that I hope will seal that deal in your mind. Jesus comes, he delights in this. He delights in that's why he doesn't struggle with sin the way we do, because he sees the laws. This is good for me. This is good for me. This is good for my family. This is good for my people. And this honors my father. You see, obedience to God's commands, His law, should always be in response to the gospel. I think that's why we see so many of Paul's letters where he declares the gospel and the good things that God's done and then says, now live in light of that. Because Paul's helping us see that. He's helping us connect the two. You see, I obey, I'm not saying I, but we, we should obey in response to the goodness and love of God that we see displayed in the gospel where God's law is once again united with God's gracious hand. Now, how's that for changing your perspective on obedience? How's that for obedience? I hope that changes the way you... I hope. To impact and to, to bring about change in the way you view God's commands, because that will change the way you view the rest of Ephesians. So each week, as I'm saying to you, he says, You're getting ready to talk about it this way. You're supposed to have humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's getting ready to say these kinds of things. And if we're not careful, we'll just walk out and go, all right, well, I've got to make sure I do these things because that's what God expects. Instead of, these, this is, this is God's good for me. This is what's good for me, what's honoring to Him, what's good for me. They're one and the same. See, so if you don't obey God's commands, I would argue it's, it's probably because you don't see God as gracious to you in that command. You don't... See the love of the Father to you in that command. We don't want to yield to the Spirit. Why? Because we feel like what we want to do is more loving than what the Father wants to do. What the Father is doing. So we yield to ourselves instead of yielding to the Spirit. We've divorced God's commands from God's gracious hand. I think what Paul is doing is he's helping us bring these two things back together. So here's what's happening. Paul is recounting the gospel. Chapters 1, 2, 3. The good news of Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. This calling is the gospel. It's the gracious hand of God. And Paul is so convinced in his heart and mind of these truths that he is willingly and gladly a prisoner of the Lord a prisoner of the Lord's commands, a prisoner of the Lord. And Paul then is saying, I urge you to obey God's commands. That's where he's getting ready to take us. I urge you to live in a manner worthy of your calling. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 28. He says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. This is clearly God's plan for us to live in conformity to his very character that he has revealed to us in the law now why why would jesus say such a thing i think because jesus knows that the commands are connected to the gracious and loving father and so it's out of this mindset and framework i want you to have that paul says i therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you see, the call to be children of God necessitates walking in a worthy manner. It necessitates that. It necessarily results in that, I would even argue. In walking in a worthy manner. Now obviously, this is not in a, you're going to do it perfect today, but in a trajectory sense that God is working this out in us in increasing fashion. This idea of walking, he says I need to walk. What's he mean? He refers to daily conduct, day by day living, moment by moment living, interaction by interaction living, thought by thought living. You see, those who once walked in darkness, chapter 2, now must walk in the good works that God has intended for them from the very beginning. So I want to point out a few things here to us. First of all this, I just I want to be very emphatic. It's important to walk in a certain way. It's important to walk in a certain way. Paul makes no apology for pleading with the people to do what is right. He doesn't, "Oh, well, you know, if, if you can live this way, you know." No, he's like, "I urge you to live this way." Now, the idea of urging here, it has the has the idea of like, intense feeling, strong desire. It's not a request of Paul. Now, you know, I think if you get a chance to, make sure you walk out and live this way, and this will be good. No, he's saying, I urge you, he's pleading. He's imploring them. He's begging them. Walk this way. I urge you to walk this way. Kind of like a command, with kind of that intensity, But yet he's not commanding it. He's actually pleading it. He's begging them. Walk this way. Here's the gospel. Now walk this way. I urge you. I beg you. Walk this way. I'm sure Paul has in mind that when Christians walk in the manner he's about to describe, what's Paul just been talking about? the uniting of all things in Jesus, right? What does that look like? At least in part, that looks like God's people walking in a manner worthy of their calling. they uniting those things. Bringing our hearts into rightful submission to the Father. I'm sure Paul has in mind this uniting of all things in Christ, that as Christians live in a manner worthy of the calling, that, that this reality of uniting all things in Christ is becoming greater. And we are one step closer to the end. And Christ's return is one step closer. So it is important to walk in a certain way. Let me urge you, urge you, beg with you. Let me plead with you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The second thing I th- that kind of I'd like to draw out is that there is, there is indeed a manner worthy and a manner unworthy. I mean, we live in a culture that wants to say whatever is right for you is right for you. And whatever is right for me is right for me. Right? That's the culture. Tolerance, you know, no absolute truth. And no truth at all, really, except whatever I define truth to be. That's our culture. We have to realize that that's pressing in on us. And I guarantee there are places in your life where you think the same way. If we believe there is a manner worthy, there is indeed a manner worthy and a manner unworthy, then we should seek the Scriptures to discover what is worthy and what isn't worthy. Now listen, just because mom and dad said that something is unworthy or something is worthy doesn't make it either or. Or just because any church you've been a part of says something is worthy or something is unworthy, unfitting or not appropriate or is appropriate for you as a Christian doesn't make it so. God's Word has declared what manner is worthy and what manner is unworthy. Now, kids, I didn't say just go disobey mom and dad, okay? What I'm saying is study the scriptures yourself. And one thing they're going to tell you to do is follow mom and dad. Honor mom and dad. Trust mom and dad. They probably know a little more than you, right? But that's okay. That's good for you. See, that's, children, that's what I'm trying to argue. The same thing for your mom and dad is that God knows what's good for them. He knows what's best for them. And mom and dad's supposed to follow God, follow Christ, uniting his commands with his gracious hand in their hearts so that they would see it as a joy to obey the Father and as a loving thing from the Father to obey him. Kids, it would go a long way with you if you would see your parents' commands as loving and gracious to you. I mean, man, how I long for my boys to see that, right? I long for my boys to see. When I tell them, no, this is for your good. And when I say, yes, go do this, this is for your good, my son. But there is indeed a manner worthy and a manner unworthy. You see, we walk in a worthy manner, though, not disconnected as just a set of rules that we follow, but we walk in a manner worthy because of our calling. So here we go. Our daily living should correspond to our high position as a child of God and fellow heir with Jesus Christ. We'll flesh the the latter half of that out in just a few seconds. This high position as a child. But what I want you to see right here is that our daily living should correspond to this calling. This is what Paul's been describing so far God's calling. His doing in rescuing us from darkness and making us displays of His wisdom. But what you see is this manner that is worthy. See, there are standards. I mean, in reality, yes, Paul is pleading here to live this way. But they're not suggestions. These are expectations of God's people. He's not saying in a commanding way. But God doesn't have to say something to command you. He can and he does other things. This is clear that these are divine standards. Apart from these standards, they could not live, we cannot live in a way that, that corresponds to that of our being children of God. I want to encourage you you should not resent a pastor's or a fellow sheep's entreating you. To live by faith, to obey the word, to follow God's truth. You see, a pastor who approaches with indifference is not worthy to be a pastor. A, 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 someone's in the body of Christ, we, they should be desireful and, and care enough to entreat us to live. Like to implore us, to beg us, to plead with each other to respond in obedience to the gospel. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago. What what's God doing? He is filling us with His fullness, right? And then what are we doing? We are filling the earth then with the fullness of God. So, when we entreat each other and, and encourage each other and beg each other to walk in obedience, what are we doing? We're helping fill the earth with the fullness of God. And we should not resent that kind of thing. Now, I'm trying to help us here that we don't be a bunch, as we, we did um, back when we talked through church discipline like three or four years ago. Um, we talked about uh, the church discipline police, right? We did a little video. If, if you were here, it was awesome. And we—I think it was like Brian and Tim or something like that—were the the police. And uh, you all know Brian, some of you don't know Tim, and right—they're on like stakeouts, trying to find when people are sinning, you know, and so they can go get them, you know, uh, then go after them, uh, so we can discipline them, uh, right? That's not the what we're talking about here. We're talking about seeing God's plan to fill the earth with his fullness. And we're seeing the delight that comes from the glory of God in the gospel as, as his law is connected to his gracious hand. And we beg look, joy in the Father, follow his commands. I beg you, I implore you. That's a different way than, hey, you should stop sinning. You shouldn't live that way. Right? I mean, some of us came up in churches that was like that, right? You know? Now, what are we concerned with? We're concerned with the fullness of God becoming a reality in each of our lives and on this earth. So let me point something out to you. Whatever you believe you're calling to be, like whatever you've been called to, has very, is, is very determining of the worthy manner in which you walk. I'm going to flesh this out. (coughs) If you believe your calling, let me give you an example. If you believe your calling is to provide the American dream for your children, then you will walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Or if you think that you're called to the American dream, you would walk in a manner worthy of that calling. American dream, right? We can all have success. We all have lots of money. We all have wealth. We can be free. All that that stuff. I mean, this is what Donald Trump does. He walks in a manner worthy of his calling. That's why he acts like an idiot. Right? He believes his calling is to live the American dream. I get what I want when I want it. That's why he acts the way he does. He lives according to his calling. I just watched the debate last night, you know, a little riled up. That's why he acts the way he does. On the other hand, Rubio says last night, he says, I'm willing to lose an election if it means erring on the right side of life. This is concerning the abortion issue. Look, I'll give up being the president of the United States. I mean, As far as the world goes, that's one of the greatest things you could like ever become. And I'm willing to give that up if it means making sure that I fall on the right side of protecting life. So living in that's a different calling. I'm living in a manner worthy of my calling. You can see very distinct differences. If you believe your calling is to accomplish your own agenda, own agenda for the day, then you will live in a manner worthy of that calling. The reality is you will fail at this. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to live in a manner worthy of whatever which we perceive ourselves to be called to. So we should know what we've been called to, Right? We should know what we've been called to. We have been called to the high position of beloved children of God. See, see, this is the thing. This is what I'm trying to paint for you. Whatever it is that you think you're called to, you're not called to that, you're called to this. You're not called to just give the American dream. You're not called to just get by for the day. You're not called to just make it through the week. You're not called to just make your boss happy. You're not called to just raise good children. You're not called to just get an education. You're called to be a beloved children of God. That's what you're called to be. This is what you should live in a manner worthy of. So as we get on and we, we get on into chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and, and 10 years from now, whatever it is, and we're talking about how we should be walking, how we should be living, and the sin that we should be slaying. and It's not just that we can be better people. It's because we are the beloved children of God. We should live in a manner worthy of that. And let that drive everything we do. The way we treat our spouse. The way we discipline our kids. The way we handle our finances. The humility of our heart. The patience with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The way we vote. You're a beloved child of God. And that's way more important than being an American citizen. Way more important. Back to Ephesians 4 verse 20 says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, Of the calling to which you have been called. Let's talk about this calling to which you have been called. First of all, I just want to state that we have been called. We just can't overlook just the beauty of the fact that we have been called. So we're going to kind of do the latter part of this verse, and we'll do uh, that phrase, of the calling to which you've been called. We'll look at the you have been called first. We have been called. What's Paul referring to here Paul's referring to our conversion he's referring to our the point at which we heard and believed the gospel, the point at which we were redeemed, rescued from darkness it's interesting that he says a calling to which you have you know said a prayer and walked an aisle and been baptized and you know that no he says a calling to which you have been called a calling to which God has brought you into. That God has called you into. He's referring to the sovereign, saving calling of God. Go look at John 6, 44 later this week. In Ephesians 1, 4. Let's read that. For It's not going to be up on the screen. It says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. This, this calling You see, no person can be saved apart from receiving Jesus Christ as his Savior. We all agree with that. But no person can choose Christ who has not already been chosen by the Father and the Son. You can go read John 15 later this week as well. See, Paul is referencing God's sovereign, effectual call to salvation. Him bringing His people so when he says to walk, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which God has brought you into, which God has captured and rescued you and brought you into. See, that changes the, I urge you to walk in this way. Why? Because God has brought you into this. Guys, if God had not first called you, you would not have come. He chose us, and then He called us. So we have been called. Now let's talk about the calling. We are now beloved children of God. Let's talk about that. We are beloved children of God. We are those, let's let's define this, let's give some meat to that thought there. We are those who have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Like, I could just stop right there and be like, praise God, right? That's what it means to be a beloved child of God. Every spiritual blessing. Paul doesn't stop there. Those who have been chosen to be holy and blameless, chosen to this. We are those who have been redeemed and forgiven. We are those who know God's plan to unite all things in Him. We are those who have been sealed in the promised Holy Spirit. We are those who were dead. Now alive in Christ. We are those who were now, we are those who are now prisoners of Christ instead of prisoners to the world. Church, this is the calling to which we have been called. We are these beloved children. So Paul is saying walk in a way that corresponds to the high position as a child of God and a fellow heir with Christ. He's saying that your living should match your position. Your living should correspond to your identity, and who you are as a child of God. They should correspond together. We've talked about this as a church many, many times that we live out whoever we think we are. So we should know who we are. If we think about identity, I'm telling you, Paul's telling us, we are children of God. We are his chosen people. So I would encourage you, forsake your own callings or the world's callings. Whatever you think you are called to, I would encourage you to explore and confirm and affirm this calling first. And then let the other things, how they fit into that, There's no greater calling than to be a child of God. But there are other competing calls in our life that tend to get us into trouble. Let me say this last kind of thing. I just want to make sure it's obvious. This is a calling for all Christians. What Paul's going to to implore us on and beg us to and plead to us is for all Christians. This is not just for the mature Christians or the super spiritual Christians or, Lord forbid, the pastors. This is unrelated to any prior merit. Okay? This is a calling for all Christians, no matter our socioeconomic status, no matter our ethnicity, no matter our actions prior. This is a call to all Christians. So we kind of wrap this up, I, what is Paul saying? He's saying, you have seen in the gospel God's great love for his people, for his children. Chapter 2, he talks about this being dead and trespassing sins following the course of the world. In a sense, we were set free in the gospel from the law of the land, following the course of the world that leads to Destruction. And instead, he shows us his plan that leads to eternal communion with him. He says, You have been called with this gospel, with that rescue plan. You've been called with that. And he's saying, Because of that, because of the glorious display of God's grace there, live in a manner worthy of this calling. Live in a worthy manner, because in this calling, you see God's mighty work, His gracious and loving hand. And the verses ahead, Paul is going to show us that your delight in the Father and understanding His commands, His graciousness from His hands, will lead to walking in a certain way. And He's going to describe this way of walking. For us. Now, let me say this. Let me read to you John 15, verse 10 through 11. Here's Jesus' words. This is the passage on the vine and the branches. Listen to these words in light of what we just talked about today. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things, so verse 10 and and the things prior to that, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And what? And that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. Why is Paul able to urge us to walk in this manner? Because he understands, I'm sure he understands, that there's a connection between God's commandments and God's love. That's what Jesus is saying. Why can Jesus say this? Because Jesus understands that the Father's commands come from the Father's loving hands. The Father's commands come from the Father's loving hands. Guys, Jesus is saying this. This is not at the end of jesus's earthly ministry this is kind of in the middle in there this isn't after he had accomplished all things no this is showing us this is giving us vision into how and why is jesus living the way he's living how and why is he is he overcoming not overcoming sin he's not overcoming, how is he resisting sin and, and living in a way that honors the father Because he understands his Father's commands come from the Father's loving hands. So to obey his commands is to abide in what? The Father's love. That there's a connection here. So why would we obey his commands? Why should we live in a manner worthy of our calling? Because we are loved by the Father. Because there is joy in the Father. All for what purpose? He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, that we might have Christ's joy, and that our joy may be full. I hope when you think, as we work through God's commands, that we don't disconnect it from God's loving, gracious hands, that we would see them as good to us, as love for us, as coming from His loving hands. That we, our obedience would be in response to the good news of the gospel. We don't keep the law to be saved. We keep the law because we are saved. We, we obey His commands because we are saved. We don't avoid the law. We see them as coming from His good hands. Paul is saying one last time, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called amen amen let's pray I want to have our uh, communion ladies come forward and for the band and then we'll pray Father thank you for this day and your goodness to us and all for rescuing us from callings that we were not meant to follow hard after or as primary in our lives. We are called to something much much greater. <coughs> we're called by the gospel to the gospel. We we're rescued by the gospel and brought to you through the gospel. The Father, it says we see the delight in you that our hearts should respond in seeing that you've revealed yourself to us in your commands. And that now we are called to bear that image. And it is what we were meant to do. We should delight in this. Ultimately, because we can delight in you, Father, because joy ultimately is in you, Father. I pray that as we think about walking in a manner worthy of our calling, that that we wouldn't see it as this just drudgery or this duty that we just got to make sure we get done. But we see it as delight. We see it as connected to your gracious hand, Father. Because the manner in which we should walk is defined by, is encouraged by the calling to which we've been called. And we've been called to be your children. The ones who are loved by the mighty, gracious, and merciful Father. Father, as we worship and as we prepare to take communion this morning, Father, I pray that you would lead our hands and our hearts to repentance and grant us forgiveness, Father. We would would see that the means by which you have brought us into be your children, namely the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son Jesus, that as we partake of the bread and the, the body and the blood this morning that we would be reminded that we are your beloved children. And that that would then spur our hearts and urge our hearts on towards obedience. Out of love, back to the Father. Back to you. And Father, it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.